why my clicker wouldn't work. There we go. I was thinking I was trying to find a common theme on uh, something that is part of the whole chapter. Like, why do all these different little pieces fit together? What's the what's the um, orienting principle for for this passage? Because they they don't maybe necessarily seem like they're related, right? You've got the first part about don't um, you know don't don't give alms in public that sort of thing and. And when Jesus says that, and he says, "Don't blow trumpets when you give," like that sounds really foreign to us. But in the uh, in the temple where you gave your offering, there literally were these giganto like uh, trombone looking things that you tossed your coins into, and uh, and so we we know that some people would actually like break their offering down into smaller coins so that there would be more of the coins so that it would make a bigger noise when it went into the the coffer. So uh, when Jesus says don't blow trumpets, like he, that's literally, he's actually not being, uh, ex- he's not exaggerating. <laughs> uh, so uh, anyway, you, you might wonder, well, then what does that have to do with um, treasure in heaven versus um, storing up treasure on earth versus um, you can't serve two masters and all, the, all these different things and with do not worry? Well, as I was thinking about that, what is it that, that is the co- uh, the the orienting principle of this passage, I, I realize that Jesus uses this word father over and over again, over again. Not all of the little sections of the passage have the word father in them, but I, I started to piece that together and think about it a little more. And I was thinking, you know, after chapter five, chapter five is really about the law, right? The law of the Jews, the Torah. Jesus is quoting Moses over and over again. You, you've heard it said, but I tell you the truth, dot, dot, dot. And the second, uh, it makes sense for Jesus to move from Torah, what is the law, to now this question of who is God? That is the big question of Matthew chapter 6. So maybe the big question of Matthew chapter 5 is who is, what is the law? The big question of Matthew chapter 6 is now who is God? And I think that's the reason that you find it so peppered with this language about your heavenly father over and over and over again. The father is the key central character of Jesus's um, speech in chapter six. Now, you might wonder then, uh, sorry, I I totally forgot to bring my notes up here, so I'm just kind of scrolling to them so I know where I'm headed. Uh, the, The big question then, who is God? Well... Don't we all carry into that question all sorts of misconceptions, all sorts of ideas of who we would prefer God be uh, and, uh, and who we would wish God be or, or who someone told us God might be? That's a, a key question, and in Jesus' day, there were basically two kind of major answers, right? There was the pagan answer, the Gentile answer of who the gods were. And then there was the Jewish answer of who Yahweh was, who the Lord God, the living and almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who is that God? And so he hits on that right here uh, big time in verse 7 and verses 7 and 8 when he's talking about prayer. And this is what I kind of want to zero in on, and I want to show you how this maybe opens up and explains the whole rest of chapter 6. When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, 
for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, Jesus is combating, okay, a Gentile understanding of God and of prayer and a Jewish understanding of prayer and of God in this uh, moment. Let's start with the Gentiles. So pagans, the Greeks, the Romans, their perspective of the gods was essentially this. Gods don't like us. They find us annoying. We are, in many of their understandings and in their origin stories, we were accidents. The gods didn't actually mean to have us around. They would much prefer we just go away and leave them alone. And so when you went to a temple to beseech a god, here's what you would do. You'd have maybe a scroll that you would choose from, and you would read that scroll. And the object of reading the scroll was this, make the god annoyed and tired, outlast the god, right? so that you will be heard because of your many words. Right? You, so the idea is, who is God? Who are the gods? The gods are these people who don't really like us, and if they're going to give us something, we need to annoy them to the point where they break down and relent and give us this thing that we want. Okay? Now you might think, well, that sounds crazy. What an absurd thing. But maybe that's not so far from your own misconception of God. It certainly is not that far from my own misconceptions, from my own sort of uh, false characteristics that I've placed upon God. Now, on the other side is the Jewish uh, part of this, and that is the second half of it. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, Bruce gave you a little bit of background on on the social structure of, of um, the Jewish world, so I won't go in over that in detail. But I will say this whole speech starts in Matthew 5, verse 1, okay? And he said it says that Jesus saw the multitudes or he saw the crowd or he saw these people. And the word for that group of people is the word oklos, okay? And oklos was the Greek word that would be used for a crowd that was mostly made up of peasants, okay? If you had a, a more diverse crowd, you would use a different, different Greek word. So the people Jesus is speaking to, for the most part, is uh, pretty poor, now, people in Jerusalem, in Judea, Judea, in Palestine, when they were impoverished, they often thought of themselves as impoverished for what reason? The will of God. Right? Maybe they're being punished for their father's sin or their mother's sin or their grandfather's sin or so, so on and so forth. That their impoverishment, their lack of basic needs. Think about this. What Jesus says is, your father knows what you need before you ask him. If you are a peasant in ancient Jerusalem, what you are totally and utterly concerned with is your basic needs because you struggle so much to get them. People starve, starved constantly in this era. In fact, the reason that so many children died, I mean almost exclusively, the reason that they would die is because they didn't have enough food to feed them. And so when Jesus says, don't be like the Gentiles, God is not someone you're going to wear out with your words. He actually cares about you. He actually cares about your daily needs. He's hitting on both a Greek misconception of who God is and a Jewish misconception of who God is. No, it is not the will of God for you to not have food. This God, this Father, this Lord is a dad that cares and wants to provide and knows who you are. 
If I were a sort of average Jewish person and I was in the crowd listening to Jesus talk, I know that I would have probably wondered, does God care about me? Because so many of those average Jews, they thought that they had these duties. You know, I got to go and I got to do this. I got to give a certain percentage of my money every year to make sure that the temple stays open and functions. I got to... Uh, go and sacrifice whatever I can afford to sacrifice every year. And maybe then God will love me and care about me. Now, most of them didn't think of themselves as, as uh, being unsaved, right? They didn't think they were going to hell if they didn't sacrifice or if they didn't do this or that. They thought of themselves as uh, inside the covenant, covered by uh, Abraham's covenant with God. But they thought about getting favor and reward and goodness from God as being something that you must earn. Not like a father, maybe like some fathers, not like the ideal father, which is another point that I want to make before I kind of move on. And that is that Jesus uses this term and this image of father. And this is an image that means so much to me and my personal walk with God. Because when I, you all have met my dad, and so I'm not going to preach about him in any sort of embarrassing way, but I will say that when I was young, he worked an enormous amount. And now that I'm older, I know that he did that because he cared about me, because he loved me. But so much of my life was spent with an absent dad that it was almost, it was almost shocking once he had a job that he wasn't gone so much for. Like when he was around, I was kind of like, what do I do with him? <laughs> but this image of father, God redeemed that image, and God showed me and illustrated, especially in college when I really started to take my own faith seriously, I started to look as God, at God as my Abba. That's not actually the word Jesus uses here. He uses a different, different word for God, but he's known to call God Abba, which is not exactly daddy, but it's dad. It's not formal in any stretch. And that image of a God who would walk with me who would care for me, who would see me through rough times, who would teach me diligently and patiently. That image of that kind of God became extraordinarily important so that um, actually in my journals, every single prayer entry begins with Father because that is just an extraordinarily important image to me. And I know that many of you have had a whole different image of Father. You would have loved to have a Father who was a little bit absent. I know that many of you were hurt, not just emotionally, not just spiritually, but physically by your father. And I want you to know that you don't have to do away with the image of father. You have to let God define it anew. Let Jesus define what this father is like. Because even in that one sentence, you know that he's not talking about that kind of father. You know that he's not talking about that kind of father. So who is this God? What kind of father is he? Uh, I'm going to just kind of breeze through this list of just kind of chapter six. These are kind of the characteristics that Jesus brings out. And, and there are a lot more that he's going to bring out in other places and at other times. But this is what he focuses on in this chapter. The first one is that uh, the father is a giver of rewards. Right. And uh, the reward is uh well, I should have put in here that the Father gives rewards for things that the earth and society do not give rewards for, right? 
in that day and age, the, the whole trumpet thing of uh, giving, giving alms and blowing trumpets and letting everybody know that you are great and you had, you had given lots of money to this organization that was going to help out society, there was that, and then there was the, the fasting. A lot of Pharisees fasted. I think it was like every like Thursday or something they would fast, and, and they were known to like make themselves look worse than they really were. Uh, they might they might even walk in certain parts of the temple and sort of shout out like I'm fasting. Uh, and uh, and here's the thing: the earth, the people of the earth, honored them for that, right? It sounds absurd and ludicrous and totally stupid, and yet everybody loved it. Maybe they didn't like it exactly, but they honored it. They made these people, put these people up on a pedestal. They gave them great influence and leadership. The earth rewards pride. This father looks deeper. This father rewards the humility that will go unrewarded. Um, I, I put rewards in quotes um, just because I think it, we, need, we need to allow ourselves to define that word the way God defines it. Uh, I grew up, not the church that I grew up in, but my mom had some friends who grew up in a, a different kind of church, and they, they were pretty influential on my family in some ways, and, and they loved to talk about getting a new, like, diamond on their crown or something, you know, like every time they did this or did that, they, yeah, some of you are not in your head, you know what I'm talking about, uh, like there's this, like, rat race of Christian faith, right, like if I can, if I can just work harder, I'm going to have a really big crown, well, here's the thing about the crowns, we all lay them down anyway in heaven, right, <laughs> like, you take them off and give them to Jesus. So go get your big crown. Good for you. It won't mean a thing, right? Um, that's, the, that's the image. However God rewards us, uh, it'll be good. It'll be a lot better than whatever we, we might think of. And I think in my own life, what I just really want is just to be swept away in his presence. That'd be pretty good. Pretty awesome reward. More than enough of a reward. So, uh, again, I've kind of already mentioned the second one. He honors humility, whereas as in their world, the self-glorification, people get honor for that. The, uh, he is unseen is, is another thing that um, I can't decide how deeply to go into, but there's just this idea that, you know, God is not an idol. God is not, uh, this father is not somebody you go to in a temple I think part of the reason that Jesus talks about him as being unseen is, is the idea not just that God is uh, sees what's done in secret, but it's also that, that God is everywhere, right? It's not you don't go to this certain place to get God. You don't go. It's not that God just hangs out in the temple in the holy of holies, and that's the only place you access him. At least I think that's this is an, an allusion to that idea. Certainly, I know and believe that Jesus thought that. But there's this idea that this father journeys with you. This father is with you constantly. The next is, uh, we already talked a little bit about, he knows your needs. This father desires to reign on the earth. This father desires, desires to reign on the earth. The gods, again, they had their own like 
sort of world, and they would play around in the Greek mythology and Roman myths. They would play around with the world. But, but for the most part, they wanted different kingdoms. They didn't overthrow earthly kings. Maybe they would, but then they'd leave them to their own, leave them to their own rotting devices. But for the most part, they were just, uh, they didn't really care. Yahweh, on the other hand, the Jewish God, the idea of the Lord was that he, for the most part, would rule, but he would rule the Jews and maybe not so much the other people in a lot of Jewish circles at the time. Jesus' prayer, though, includes this, this idea, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This God desires to penetrate and interact with your life. God desires to rule in your life. That is profoundly important. There were times in my life when I was in sixth and seventh grade and my dad was working at a, as a human resources director for this hospital and he was working 80-hour weeks. There were times where I wanted my, God, my dad to reign in my life. I wanted him to get involved in my problems. It also happened to be the, the hardest couple of years of my uh, childhood in that time. I really needed him in that time. That's the kind of father he's talking about. His kingdom come will be done in, in your life. Whatever that thing is you maybe would prefer to hold away from him, that's where he wants to be. That's where he wants to rule. And his ruling is not with like the, the iron scepter that he beats you over the head with. Though I've had some moments where I think that's probably what he wanted to do to me. Um, his patience endures. Anyway, the, the, mercy, the next thing is about mercy, uh, this forgiveness statement. This is one of those places where he says, and by the way, don't just lean on my mercy as if it's like just yours to keep. Your mercy is connected. Your mercy is connected to his mercy. And so this father wants us to emulate him. And then finally with the idea of um, do not worry about tomorrow, right? And the whole idea about do not worry about tomorrow is do you believe that God is trustworthy? This was, I did not, I, I can honestly say to you, I did not believe that God was trustworthy. Deep down in my gut, I truly did not believe that God was trustworthy, trustworthy until I was like 23 or 24 years old. And I've been basically a Christian my whole life. Prayed to God for, you know, since I was a young child. And I tr truly did not believe that God was trustworthy until I was 23 or 24 years old. And it's still a challenge to really deeply believe that. I still worry about tomorrow. And why do I worry about tomorrow? Because maybe I doubt whether he's really going to take care of me like the sparrows and really clothe me like the lilies. Of the field. And so there's the idea Jesus is really, truly, deeply harping on who is God. He is a good and gracious Father who cares about you, even the Oclos, right? Even the rabble, even the rugged crowd. He cares about you. He is not the God of the Greeks and the Jews. He is the God of the Jews, but here's who he really is, what he's really like. Now, where does this fit in, though, in the bigger scheme of the book of Matthew? Um, I really think that the reason that this follows chapter 5 is because if you want to do chapter 5, you better believe chapter 6. 
you want to do chapter 5, you better believe chapter 6. Because chapter 5 is enormously difficult. Chapter 5 is probably the most difficult of all Christian teaching. I mean, really, honestly, at least it is for me. Maybe you're all superheroes in faith. But love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. That's tough. Right? Extraordinarily difficult things. Turn the other cheek. Hard, hard stuff. If you go out and you try to do that without believing that this is who God is, if you, if you go out and you try to do that without believing that God is in your corner, that God is a Father who will walk with you and teach you and be patiently uh, going your way, attending to your needs, if you believe in a God that isn't that, if you believe in a God who you need to annoy to the point to give you things, chapter 5 is impossible. If you believe in a God that doesn't really care about you, who wants to rule and reign and be great, but doesn't really care whether you're a part of it or not, chapter 5 will be enormously difficult. And even if you do believe this, chapter 5 is still going to be really, really hard. But if you want to do this stuff, your father knows what you need before you ask, before you ask him is, is like the foundation, the pillar upon which we live out the idea, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I can or I try or I strive to do something like that because I deeply believe that this is who God is, that God is who Jesus says he is. I want to um, end, I say end, but this is going to be a long story. So <laughs> I want to talk about this guy that I read about recently. His name is Balthazar Hubmeyer, and I'm going to call him Hubmeyer from now on because Balthazar just tongue-ties me. Uh, so Hubmeyer is a, uh, he was born before the turn of the century, so he was born in like 1490-ish or something like that, and he was a priest in southern Germany, uh, a Roman Catholic priest like everybody, all the other priests at the time, and uh, he, around the year 1521, he starts to read the Bible just like everybody else at that time, because Luther has, has opened up the idea of reading the Bible and, and really studying it and founding your church and your doctrine off of Scripture. And he starts to do that, and, uh, and he becomes convinced of a lot of things. He becomes convinced of a lot of the things that Luther has taught, that you're saved by faith, you're saved by grace, and, and not through the sacraments of the church. And, and he, but he doesn't renounce being a priest. He just, just changes what he preaches and he just starts preaching in the in the common language, and uh, he's in this little town called Waldshut, and uh, Waldshut, his little church becomes packed because he's he's a renowned preacher. He already was before because some Catholic preachers did actually preach in the local language, and he had kind of done that, and and he was really well known, and and then at a certain point he becomes convinced of something else, something called believer's baptism, which is what we what we practice, and probably what a lot of you grew up with. That is the idea that in order to be baptized, you need to be old enough to get sent. Right? You need to be old enough to basically say, yes, I want to be baptized. You need to be old enough to make that conscious choice, to give your allegiance to God, to repent, to do those things. You have to be able to do that in your head. Um, and, and so that's a rejection of infant baptism. Now, at the time, they baptized infants because they thought that they couldn't be saved if they did not baptize them. Now, if you put yourself in the skins of, of someone who believes that, it's extraordinarily important then to baptize a baby, right? Because you think they're going to suffer in hell for all eternity if you do not baptize this baby, right? 
I mean, if, if that was what you believe, that's, that's, what you, that's the consequence of not baptizing babies. But Balthazar uh, Hubmeyer becomes convinced that, that no believer's baptism is a thing. And he, at that point, leaves the Catholic Church, and his whole church stays with him, and, and he becomes extraordinarily successful, and he writes and writes and writes, and is published and published and published, and uh, he becomes famous in this region. And it's, uh, it's uh, right along um, the uh, – what river? It's along a big river <laughs> and in, the, in the mountains uh, in between Switzerland and uh, – in between Switzerland and um, – Germany, and it's a pretty isolated place, and so most of the time people don't care. And he writes these scathing, prideful things about other people who don't agree with him. And at a certain point, the emperor, a guy by the name of Ferdinand, <clears throat> he uh, decides he doesn't care that Waldshut is in the middle of nowhere. He's going to raise an army and go and get Hubmeier. Okay? Hubmeyer finds that out, and he flees, and he doesn't have the choice to go north, which would have been a lot safer for him because that route's already cut off. So he has to go south into Switzerland, okay, where there's this guy named Zwingli who's in charge of kind of all of Switzerland who believes in infant baptism and not believer's baptism. And so uh, Hubmeyer gets there, and he is arrested. And uh, he has a disputation with Zwingli, a public a public dispute, a public um, debate, and uh, he's declared the loser. Imagine that. And he, they basically, he knows if I if I don't recant, then I'll be executed. And so he recants. He says, uh, "I I, dis I disavow all the things that I said. I all my, you know, burn my books, all that sort of stuff. I don't believe that anymore." And he's left in jail overnight because Zwingli says, that's great. I'm glad you did that. But tomorrow you have to do it in church in front of everybody. And so he's given the night to think about it in jail. And he, he gets to church the next day and he decides, no, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm going <laughs> to not recant. So he gets in the pulpit and he gives this sermon about believer's baptism. And Zwingli gets up and like hits him over the head <laughs> and they arrest him. I, sorry, I laughed. But there's that image in church. It's awful that that happened. But anyway, um, arrest him, and they take him to prison, and they torture him for uh, uh, a week. And they don't give him the chance to recant during the torture. Uh, but at the end, after, the, after a week of being tortured, and torture in this period is just, I mean, it's awful. Horrendous. So at the end of, uh, torture is always bad, but torture in this time, I mean, Bad stuff. He uh, he ends up giving and being given an opportunity to recant again, and he does. And they let him out in the middle of the night, and he runs away. And nobody knows what happens for like eight months. Hubmeyer just disappears. He's just full of shame, tortured by the fact that he ran away a coward. Because at this very same time, people who believe the same thing were being drowned, burned at the stake. And he was really the most famous of uh, the believers' baptism people. They're called the Anabaptists. And he, their hero, most famous of them, proven to be a coward. So he wanders around and he ends up, uh, he ends up writing this, this letter called My Apology. And he say, says in that letter, Oh God, 
pardon me my weakness. It is good for me, as David says, that thou hast humbled me. Remember he had a reputation for being rather prideful for how he defended believers' baptism. He is, uh, ends up going to a place called Moravia, which at the time was, was, had a lot of tolerance, um, and you could believe mostly what you wanted um, and not get hurt. And uh, he is there for 14 months. And in that 14-month period, he baptizes 6,000 people, which is a big deal in a small area like this. He's extraordinarily successful. And in all of his writing, his tone has changed. He's suddenly now a much more humble proponent of believer's baptism. He suddenly has this change of heart and this change of attitude. I think for Hubmeyer, he believed be believer's baptism probably very sincerely. He believed in, in his convictions very sincerely. I think he believed in Jesus very sincerely. When Jesus says you cannot serve two masters, he doesn't say that uh, you know in order the sign of someone who's serving another master and not God is someone who doesn't feel good about Christianity, right? He doesn't say um, here's how you know that you're serving a different master is because you don't really care about you don't really pray you don't really mean your prayers you're just totally insincere and inauthentic in your spiritual life. I don't think that at all about Hubmeyer. But I do think that Hubmeyer was serving a different master when he went to be arrest, when he was arrested the first time. I do think that he was afraid of tomorrow and what tomorrow might bring. I do think he was afraid and a slave and mastered by his fear. I do think he was swept away in his worry of the pain he might face of the earthly cost of his journeying forward, I do think that his definition of God as Father was lacking. He's arrested again at the end of this 14-month period. And he is uh, given a chance to recant after being arrested, and he, he will not do it. He's given a chance uh, in the midst of being tortured for a week again. And against, again, he will not recant until finally he is executed. I want to read to you um, the account of his execution. Because I think it's important to see and hear. So they've led him out and they've they've tied him to the uh, to the stake and they've, they've brought the... Um, brought the wood and laid it at his feet. So this is written by a, a lawyer who was a, uh, a witness, was not an Anabaptist, was not someone who liked him or anything. So typically if people write good things about you, even though they don't like you in history, we normally think that's probably true then. <laughs> so this is, this, is what it, uh, this is what he says. Oh, gracious God, forgive my sins in my great torment. To the people, he said, Oh, dear brothers, if I have injured any in word or deed, may he forgive me for the sake of my merciful God. I forgive all those who have done harm, done me harm. While his clothes were being removed, 
From thee, thee also, O Lord, were the clothes stripped. My clothes will I gladly leave here. Only preserve my spirit and my soul, I beseech thee. Then he added in Latin, O Lord, into thy hands I commit my spirit. As they rubbed sulfur and gunpowder into his beard. The reason they did that is because people would often die of suffocation when, uh, when they were being burnt at the stake. And um, people thought that that was sort of cheating the process. They wanted them to feel the pain of the flames. And so uh, then he says, uh, oh, salt me well, salt me well. I tried to figure out what in the world that means, but I, I couldn't find any explanation. So whatever that means. And raising his head, he called out, oh, dear brothers, pray God that he will give me patience in this suffering. And they took the torch and they lit the sticks at his feet. And as he burnt um, he cried out, Oh, Jesus, Jesus. And those were his last words. You can see the depth of Matthew chapter 6. Seeing a God as a father who will be there even in the flames. Seeing and praying and hoping that this God who has carried you through will also enable you to forgive those who have done you harm, your enemies. The last word in this chapter is, so don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow, not because you know tomorrow is going to be great. Don't worry about tomorrow, not because uh, you've got life all figured out and you're great. Don't worry about tomorrow because this is the God who is your Father. Don't worry about tomorrow because your Father knows what you need and will take care of you. Don't worry about tomorrow because even should it be flames, he will be with you because this is the God who cares. Don't worry about tomorrow, not because God is annoyed with you and you need to wear him down in order to get what you want for tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow because your heavenly father sees you. He even sees what you do in secret. Don't worry about tomorrow because this is who God is. Let's pray. Jesus, I, uh, I thank you for the stories of the saints that have gone before us who have struggled with this faith, who have reached out to you as their father. Thank you for Balthazar Hubmeyer. Thank you for his transformation. I thank you that you didn't give up on him. I thank you that you are his father. I think about the, the story of the prodigal son and the idea that the father never stops being such. How much the father in that story maybe would have been better off if he had just disowned his son. And I thank you you didn't do that 
for Hub Meyer, I thank you that you didn't do that to any of us in here, and I thank you that you didn't do that to me. You are a God who cares about our daily needs. You are a God who empowers us to forgive. You are a God who forgives us. You are a God who does not wish to lead us into temptation, but wants to deliver us from evil. And so it is in you, the God declared and revealed in Jesus Christ, that we pray and put our trust. We love you and we adore you. We thank you for the opportunity to know you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What a joy divine Leaning on the everlasting arms What a blessedness What a peace is mine Leaning on the everlasting arms Leaning, leaning Safe and secure from all alarms Leaning, leaning Leaning on the everlasting arms Oh, how sweet to walk in this pilgrim way Leaning on the everlasting arms Oh, how bright the path grows from day to day Leaning on the everlasting arms Leaning, leaning Safe and secure from all alarms Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting
safe and secure from all alarms. Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. I don't want you to go away thinking that um, that I think or that I think that Jesus thought that somehow like the God of the Old Testament wasn't the right God or something like that. I, I feel like I said some things that could be misconstrued that way. Um, because God was the same in the Old Testament. God was still a father. He was this father in throughout. In fact, when, when Moses says uh, to the priest, like if somebody comes and wants a blessing, you know, what, what should you say to them? And he tells them what to say. He says, May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and grant you peace. That sounds like the God of Matthew chapter 6, right? So go knowing, knowing that this God is the God. This God who Jesus revealed, this God who Jesus articulated so well, this God who Jesus enfleshed and embodied. This is your God. This is the one who cares and is there through it all. <laughs> through your recanting, maybe all the way to the flames. This is your Father. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.